So I want to uh, give a little spiffy introduction to my message this morning that I heard on a YouTube video that I was watching this week from another pastor. And he said, um, he said, I want to minister this message to you, and this is my goal. My goal is to see that God is glorified and also to see that every one of you in the church is edified and also that the devil is horrified <laughs> at what I might be saying that might change your life to become more like Jesus. So I like that. God would be glorified that all of you here would be edified, the enemy would be horrified, although I don't want, I don't want to take the, the enemy any too lightly because uh, a lot of us deal with spiritual warfare. All right, today we finish uh, Luke chapter uh, 8, which means that when this message is concluded, we will have taught one-third of the way through the Gospel of Luke. It's been a, I guess I could use the word, a fascinating study. I feel like the messages have been right on. And I also feel like uh, what we have been preaching here, well, I've been here 16 years now, Sunday after Sunday of our need for a revelation of who God is and a revelation of who Jesus is and that the greater revelation of God and the greater revelation of Jesus that we have, the tighter we're going to walk with God and the more we'll obey God. And I think this Gospel of Luke is doing that for us. I think we're seeing more and more of Jesus and understanding more and more of uh, who he is and his heart for people. You know, I was looking through the Gospels. Jesus never has condemned anybody in the Gospels except those who are self-righteous. Did you ever know that? Read through the Gospels. He's, he never condemns sinners. He just says, you know, just, you just need to stop it and sin no more. Only the self-righteous does Jesus ever get uh, angry about. So today in Luke chapter 8, just a fascinating chapter. We've looked at it. Um, Jeff's t the last two weeks, uh, great, excellent, uh, excellent word, healing the centurion's servant and calming the storm on the lake and then, of course, raising the son of the widow uh, in the city of Nain. So there, as the kids would say that were just up here before I got up here, the, the crowd was pumped for Jesus to get back because they wanted to know what next would he be doing? But in this crowd, uh, in this crowd, there is a official of the local synagogue named Jairus. And he is, Jairus is beside himself. He is suffering. He's a frantic father whose only daughter, as you can see in the text, as we're told, his only daughter, just 12 years old, was dying. Now, we don't know how long the crowd or how long Jesus, uh, uh, that they were waiting for Jesus to get back across the lake. But for this father, who'd seen his daughter uh, get weaker and weaker and get closer and closer to death, every single moment that Jesus wasn't there, this father, uh, his anxiety built up. He was desperate. He was desperate that Jesus would come because Jesus was his last hope. He had, he had tried everything else 
and Jesus was his, was his last hope. And, and only those of you who've perhaps had a child in crisis can know what it feels like for a parent to wonder if their son or their daughter is going to live. He can only understand what this parent would be enduring or the suffering that uh, he would have been going through. About um, 18 months ago tomorrow, a uh, Hummer SUV roared through a red light in, uh, in Aliso Viejo, swung wildly into oncoming traffic, missed two cars, but didn't miss the third, a Chevy Silverado pickup, uh, and plowed head-on into that pickup, demolishing the truck completely. The Hummer, which is a huge tank-like vehicle, flipped on its side, broken axle, and all the tires were ripped off the rims. That's how bad the accident was. Somebody from this church recognized the truck in that accident and called Nikki and said, I think your son's been in an accident. And Nikki called me, I was at the orthodontist, and for a moment, whether you know if your son's alive or dead, this terror grips you, like the thought of this extraordinary young man, this boy God's given us, this boy that we love so much, maybe had been killed. You can't hardly describe it as a parent. And, uh, but a few minutes later, we found out uh, that he was alive. He had pulled himself uh, out of the truck and uh, his first thought was, thank God Elizabeth and Dylan weren't with me because they wouldn't have made it through that accident because the, the brunt of the accident was on the passenger side. Um, the driver of the Hummer was three times drunk over the limit at noon on a Monday and couldn't even get out of the truck and they handcuffed him and took him, took him to jail. So the second, this, this is what Jairus is feeling, this terrible feeling of a parent losing a child. The second that Jesus lands at that shore, Jairus throws himself on the ground before Jesus, and he's begging and he's pleading with Jesus to please come to my house. Come to my house and help my little girl. And Jesus immediately responds. And the two of them began walking towards Jairus' house. But remember, there's this huge crowd. There was probably up to a 1,000 people there, maybe even more. And they're trying to, you know, the streets in those days were about as wide as this. They weren't like for cars. They were narrow streets. And Jesus is trying to make his way to Jairus' house and every second counts. Every moment is important. There's not a, a second to lose. And the last thing that Jairus, Jairus expects is that there would be any kind of interruption. Just got to get to my girl. Just got to get there. But indeed, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be an interruption. And let's look at our second passage. As Jesus is walking... A woman who had had hemorrhaged for 12 years, 
She'd had this issue of blood for 12 years and spent all her living on physicians with no cure, came up behind Jesus, reached out, and touched the hem of his garment. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus said. All denied it when Peter replied, Master, the multitude is pressing you on every side. But Jesus responded, Someone deliberately touched me. Someone deliberately touched me, for I perceived healing power go out from me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she fell down before Jesus, trembling, and said for everyone to hear how she had touched Jesus and been instantly cured. And Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go and enter into peace. Your Bible will say, go in peace, but literally the Greek means go and finally enter into peace, a peace you've never had for 12 years. So let's look at this woman. She is almost as frantic as Jairus. And Jesus is, like Jairus, her last hope. Twelve excruciating years she had gone from doctor to doctor to doctor. She had tried every herb and every health aid that was out there at that time in history. She spent all her money, all her earnings on trying to get well, and it had all failed. Nothing had worked. She had bled. In fact, some scholars say that it was a miracle that after 12 years of bleeding, she was still alive at this point. But there's more to her story because she is also considered ceremoniously unclean. Because in Leviticus, if a woman had an issue of blood, she was deemed untouchable. She had to stay out of public. She had to stay alone by herself. She couldn't touch anybody and nobody could touch her. So, she definitely is not at the lake when Jesus steps off the boat because she wouldn't have been allowed to be there. So where did she come from? How did she get there? Well, this dear suffering woman probably slipped out of an alley or crept out of her house when the huge crowd was going by. Maybe she was behind a tree or a rock, but she sees Jesus close enough where she can maybe pull her robe over her face a little bit, kind of hunker down and get behind Jesus and begin to try to somehow get near enough to him because this woman with this palpable faith feels if I can just somehow touch him, if I can somehow just reach out and touch him, I'm going to get well. Not maybe I need a counseling appointment with him or maybe he has time for me. She has one opportunity and somehow with the crowd jostling Jesus and he slowed down a little bit, she creeps up behind him and no doubt her heart is beating wildly and her eyes are wide open with desperation and her adrenaline is sky high and she sticks her arm out as she gets close enough to Jesus 
and extends her fingers and barely grazes the hem of his garment, touches the fringe of his robe, and instantly, amazingly, shockingly, she's healed, and she knows it. That sensation of an issue of blood stopped right then, and she is cured, and she, for the first time in her life, has been made well. Who touched me? Jesus said. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, like there's people all over the place who are knocking into you and jostling you. And, and what do you mean who touched you? No, Peter, who deliberately touched me? Because I felt healing power shoot out of my body. And so at that moment that this dear suffering woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment, healing power shot out of Jesus. And they both knew something had happened. Well, this woman, because Jesus is asking this question, realizes that she's not gone unnoticed. And so, I don't know if any of you have ever been like so nervous or upset that you've shaken? Have you ever been in that place where you literally, I've been in that place a couple of times in my life where something so tough happened, I was kind of shaking. She's been noticed and this woman begins to shake and begins to tremble. And she throws herself down at Jesus' feet. And she says, Lord, well, we don't have exactly what she said, but it went something like this. Lord, it was me. I, 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 I touched you. I was desperate to be healed. I touched you, and you did heal me, and I've been instantly made well. Wow, what a moment. The whole crowd heard. They all knew who she was. And they're waiting for what Jesus is going to say. But what I might say to you is what he didn't say like maybe what the Pharisees would have said. What Jesus didn't say was, uh, you shouldn't have touched me. You know, according to the Mosaic law, it's, uh, it's against the ordinances and commands. What were you doing? Like, you were way out of line here. No, that's not, that's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? In the most affectionate and tender and comforting way, which is how Jesus feels about every single one of you. Every single one of you. He says to her, daughter. Essentially, my daughter, my beloved one. He pours his love into her in that little greeting. He pours, Jesus pours his love into this desperate woman 12 years ill. And I just want to say, like I'm jumping the gun on my closing. <laughs> I don't know how many here have been ill a long time or you've been struggling with something for a long time. Don't give up hope. 
Okay? If this, if this message says anything to us, it's never give up. Never let go and say it's too much. Twelve years of this is too much. Because you don't know if there's not a miracle around the next corner. You don't know that God's going to step in and majorly change your life. You don't know that the Holy Spirit is one day going to touch you and you're going to stand up and you're going to be healed. You don't know. You don't know what's around the next day, the next month, or the next year. You don't know the graciousness of God. You don't know God's ways. We don't know too much except that God is alive and he does this because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Is that not right? Can I get an amen that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? God, what he did back then, he will do now. So, gosh, I feel like getting ahead of myself. I'm just going to, like Nikki says, my biggest weakness is I'm impatient, and I'm really impatient on, on, this, on this one. But can you imagine Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And she gets up off that ground. Jesus says, go and enter into peace. And she's going to walk away. She's going to walk away from that crowd. I don't quite know where she went. But can you imagine the rejoicing and the gladness of heart and soul that was in her? And for the first time in 12 years, she's going to be content and be at peace. But for Jairus, as great a moment as it was for this woman, a terrible moment comes next. Let's look at our passage, our last section. While Jesus was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived and said to Jairus, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And I'm just going to jump in here and just say, that's the worst sentence any parent could ever hear. It's the worst thing a parent could ever hear. Jesus, who loves Jairus as much as he did that woman with the issue of blood, immediately comforts him. When Jesus heard this, he said, do not be afraid. Have faith and she will be made well. Arriving at the house, Jesus let no one in except Peter, James, and John and Jairus and his wife, the mother. And everyone was weeping and wailing, but Jesus said, Do not cry, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they all laughed. Why did they laugh? They knew full well that she was dead. That she had died. And Jesus took her hand and said in a loud voice, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she instantly stood up. And Jesus then told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> well, I love that line. And her parents were overwhelmed, but Jesus insisted that they tell no one what had occurred. So here was the interruption with this woman with the issue of blood being healed. Everything stopped, and then Jairus hears this terrible news from the messenger that his daughter has, has died. And I'll tell you this, for Jeff or myself or Greg or any pastor who's called to the hospital when there's been someone in crisis and they don't make it and you're standing there with the family and the doctor comes out and says, I'm sorry, but we weren't able to, to help your loved one. 
that's, that's, a, that's a tough part of the pastor with so many great things going on. It's hard to be with someone when they hear that news. But Jesus uh, steps in and says to Jairus, I have faith and she, may, she shall be made well. And we already know that Jairus has a lot of faith because he went down to that seashore and he begged for Jesus to come. He has a lot of faith. And he's not going to give up. Jesus immediately steps in and I think his faith level popped back up. Because the news was clear about Jesus. He'd already raised the dead. And so when they get to the house, Jesus tells everybody to leave. Get out of there. Even the ones that were laughing and all of that, when he said to them, she's not dead, she's just asleep. He tells everybody to leave and only takes into the child's room Peter, James, and John, who in, in looking at this passage, I'm saying this is the first year of their ministry. Jesus is training them. He's teaching them in what he's doing. But he takes Peter, James, and John, who are his three closest disciples, and then Jairus and his wife, and they, uh, Jesus takes the girl's hand and says in a loud voice, child, arise, and her spirit returned. That's, that's an important uh, three words here, and her spirit returned. It's important that that's what's said. Otherwise, somebody could say, well, maybe she just, they thought she was dead, but she wasn't. No, her spirit was gone. On Good Friday, April 15, 2001, my mother was laying in my lap, and she breathed her last breath, and I literally watched her spirit leave her body. I still believe I saw angels escort her out of her apartment. I knew as well as I'm looking at you right now that that spirit and my mother left. Well, this is what had happened to this young girl. Her spirit had left, and Jesus called it back. How many of you know that we're just in a tent right now? We're just in a temporary body, huh? Yeah. yeah. You get to be my age and not so concerned about how you look anymore? <laughs> what you're concerned about is that you just, uh, you just walk with God, and you just serve the Lord, and you just told my wife and a lot of you, I just want to finish well in this life of mine want to finish well and want to serve the Lord and, and I want to have the things in me that I know aren't right changed and you see because one day my spirit's going to leave and we have one life to live all of us one life to live wise is the person that fully yields and surrenders their one life to God and serves the Lord and loves the Lord and serves others and loves others, wise is that person who one day will stand before the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and you will hear words such as, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How many would like to hear those words when you stand before God? Yeah, I would. I would. So... Um, she instantly stands up and Jesus says, would somebody please get her something to eat? <laughs> so this is my interpretation of that. Uh, when she, you know, they didn't have IVs back then. And she had been sick for a long time and probably hadn't eaten for days and days. Well, Jesus didn't want to just raise her from the dead. He wanted to make sure that, she, that her physical body was going to feel better. And so Jesus said, feed her. 
I just think it's wonderful that God is interested in every single aspect, every single point, every single part of our life. And her parents were overwhelmed, of course. They got their little girl back. And Jesus, as he did several times, insisted that, that, which I think is kind of, I mean, part of me, this might sound strange. I think it's kind of silly to say, don't tell anyone. Everybody knew she was dead. Now she's alive. (laughs) Anyway, so, all right. I've only got about four minutes left. I want to put down uh, a few things uh, that we can learn from these two passages. And I think this... This, this passage about the woman with the hemorrhaging, the issue of blood, is my favorite, is my favorite story of all the gospel. I love that story that we just looked at. All right, I always, already sort of mentioned this a second ago, but sometimes it feels like, what can we learn from these two accounts? Sometimes it feels like you cannot bear something another moment, another minute. Perhaps it's illness or rebellious kids or a terrible marriage or addiction or failure or weakness. But no matter how tough life gets, there may be a miracle around the corner. It may take 12 years, only God knows. So I want, my first point is that you would get, have, those of you who have struggled with something, you'd have hope. You'd have some hope. I believe these two stories give us hope. Secondly, Why would God allow 12 years of suffering or a crisis prayer that is not answered? We did see crisis prayers answered, but sometimes they're not answered. Or we experience heartbreak over a child. Why does this happen in life? Well, we can't know. We cannot always understand. But nothing makes sense, and I'll guarantee you, to every single one of us, there'll be times in your life where nothing makes sense. You can't figure it out. It makes, to you, you just go like, God, something happened. Did you go to sleep? What happened? Why did you let this take place in my life? When that happens, when nothing makes sense, there's only one thing you do, and that's to trust God. You trust him completely. You trust him fully. His ways aren't our ways. He's different from us. We cannot know God's plans or his purposes. And Sometimes they're painful, and sometimes they put us on our face, and sometimes we're in the dark night of the soul, and sometimes we're in the valley of weeping. We don't understand a thing, but we need to trust God. That's what we need to do. Thirdly, a Jairus pleading with Jesus for help is a picture, and I love this, of intense intercessory prayer. He throws himself on the ground, pleading, and this hemorrhaging woman, her heart is also a heart of intense intercessory prayer. And I've quoted uh, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, if I could have the next slide uh, put up, I want to read this verse from Hebrews chapter 4. Jairus boldly went to Jesus. And we're told in Hebrews that we are to boldly come before God. Since we have a great high priest who has gone to heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to him and never stop trusting. For he understands our weaknesses and has faced the same, same temptations as us, yet without sinning. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we will receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So I don't know if any of you are shy to come before God, but come boldly before God. This is what Hebrews tells us to do. Don't be shy. Tell God exactly how you feel. Let God know what's going on inside you. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Number four, 
There we go. A faith is active. It does no good for Jairus to stay home and say, Lord, would you please heal my daughter? Well, I won't say it does no good, but that's not what God was after. And the hemorrhaging woman, she could have stayed in her house and say, when Jesus goes by, oh Lord, would you just touch me? But that's not what they did. Faith is a verb. It's active. And so the woman reached out and touched Jesus. Jairus pursued Jesus to come to his house. Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith, is a chapter of active faith. Abraham offered Isaac in faith. Noah built an ark in faith. Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt and across the Red Sea in faith. The armies of the children of Israel marched around Jericho seven days in faith. And the answers came. Faith is active. Number five, why does God allow crisis in our life? Which we've just seen two crises. It will always remind us of our own mortality. How many of you are like me that you start thinking that you're a little something once in a while? All it takes is one crisis to show you that you're not so hot. Right? It always reminds us of our our mortality and drives us to Christ. You know what a crisis does for me? It drives me down the stairs of my upper room study into my garage. That's where I go. That's my place of crisis. And I circle my wife's car. I walk around this car for sometimes hours. Sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes early in the morning. When crisis hits and I don't know what to do, I head for the garage. And I start pacing the car and praying and seeking God. Because, and, I have, and I say over and over, God, I have no answers. I can't do anything apart from you. Everything is you. Number six. Miracles can be hindered by unbelieving people. If you want a miracle, get every skeptic out of the room. That's what Jesus did. He cleared the room of everybody, all those people who were laughing at him and saying, oh, well, you know, it's it's too late. If you want a miracle, then get everybody out of the room who's a skeptic, an unbelieving person. That's why Jesus told everyone to leave the room. If you want a miracle, make a list of three or four people of extreme faith. When you need one, call them. Do you know who the people are in your life of extreme faith? I do. And lastly, while God will step in and work miracles in this life, sometimes the answer will be no. And I know there are those of you in which the answer was no. You've had terrible tragedies in your life, and God didn't answer some prayers. And like I said, we don't know why. But still... We get a no once in a while. It's not time. Maybe we pray with wrong motives or God's ways aren't our ways. It's his will that prevails, not ours. There are no formulas to miracles. There are no keys to unlocking miracles. We just must trust God. Now to close, on Friday, I went to the hospital, Mission Hospital, with a pastor friend of mine from San Clemente to pray over somebody that we both knew. And as we were waiting to be able to get into the room, he told me what happened in that same hospital 15 months ago, that there had been a woman that he knew who had died, and she was proclaimed dead. She was on life support on a Sunday, and the reason she was on life support on Sunday after being declared dead was they were going to take her organs on Monday. She was in 
organ donor. And God spoke to this pastor and said, you go up and pray for her. And at Mission Hospital, Mission Viejo, this pastor laid his hands on this woman and she came back to life. Okay, You say miracles don't happen anymore, but it doesn't happen every day. It doesn't maybe happen every week, but it happened at Mission Hospital last year. I just want you to know God still is a God of mighty miracles, a God of power, a God who acts on our behalf when the time's right. All right, let's all stand. Maybe, maybe you need a miracle this morning. Maybe you need God to touch you. You know what I did Thursday night, everybody? When I was studying this passage, I was sitting in my chair in my front room, and I reached my hand out as far as I could. I reached my hand out like this, and I said to God, God, I've got these couple of things that are messing up, messing up my life. And I went as far as I could, and I stretched and stretched. Oh, I touched the hem of his garment. I did it in faith. You might go home and try that. I felt better afterwards. <laughs> Honest. Some of you need to touch the hem of his garment this morning. You do. I did. So if you need a miracle from God, don't think it's too audacious to come down forward and ask for that miracle. I'd like to ask our prayer team and our elders that are here present, to, our pastors, to come forward. And if you need a miracle, you need God to touch you, we're here to pray for you. For the rest of you, may God be glorified in your life. Pray you've been edified by this message, and I pray the enemy's been horrified by it. In Jesus' name, amen.